You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. I've tried not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to give you a recap of the series like I've been doing every week. Uh, Not everybody comes every week, and actually when you look through this stuff, this is stuff that really should be embedded in us, so it's better to repeat it, right? So here was week one, week one of this whole, because we were created by God, right? So you are not junk, and you are not a mistake. Our capacity is holy, because we were created for God. You're not damaged goods. You are or can be a redeemed person. Our purpose is to carry life, um, And to give life, meaning your life has purpose from its origin. Nothing has the power to cancel out or diminish your divine origin, your holy capacity, or your life-giving purpose. Week two was on roots and soil. So your family heritage matters. It informs, it influences, but it does not determine. It doesn't determine for the good or the bad. Your family tree, your right now family tree is more connected to your right now thinking, your right now decisions, your right now choices than the actions of your past. You can't change your family history, but you can change your family's present and future. You can't change the soil in which you were planted, but you can change the composition of the soil that you're in right now. Amen to that. You can't change your original root structure but you can put down new and fresh roots. That was week two. Week three, we talked about a family faith declaration, that declarations forge identity, they anchor resolve, and they chart a course. They're not just words on a page. Declarations matter. The one we we studied was from Joshua 24. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See how simple that was and what a powerful declaration. As far as um, me and my house, We will serve the Lord. Humanism is the prevailing religion of the day. Humanism preaches that we are gods. There is no life in being gods. There is no better life than being gods. Notice the grammatical change there. Last week, we, we talked about walking the walk and talking the talk. This is what really came to fruition even this past weekend. We have to stand guard to exceed the influential pace and passion the current culture has for this generation. Do you understand that? We have to stand guard. It's a a position. And then we have to exceed the influential pace and passion the current culture has for, for this generation because it is targeted. The best combatant for prevalent lies is consistent truth wrapped in consistent relationships. We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6. The action verbs there were impress, talk, tie, bind, and write. And then I had to remind you, I felt like, especially those who came this past weekend, that Satan wants to use a series like this, a weekend conference like this, to shame you. Like you're not doing enough, you're not good enough, you're starting too far in the back of the pack, you can't catch up, all that kind of stuff. But God always uses his word to shape us. Satan, shame. God's shape. Isn't it interesting? You can take the same truth and the same word presented to the same people and they can hear it differently. 
If you allow yourself to hear the enemy speak, you will hear that as a shaming word as opposed to God in initiating it to shape who you are. All right, this week I'm calling the message Homecoming. The most complete picture of the love and the mercy and the grace in Christ, of Christ kind of amalgamated would be Jesus on the cross. This would be, this would be the best mix of all of that seeing on the cross. And yet the Gospels have him and other storytellers telling a lot of stories that combine these three things. Um, Jesus loved teaching and stories. He understood our propensity to love a good story. So on this particular occasion, he tells this story. And I, if you can, if you can kind of put your brain and think about being on a Middle Eastern hillside in the kind of weather we're experiencing today. And Jesus has kind of gotten their attention. Maybe the day is settling on and he steps into this environment and he tells them three stories about lost things. He tells them a story about a lost coin. He tells them a story about a lost sheep. And then he launches into kind of the biggest story that he was going to tell around a lost person, a lost son. You might recognize this as the prodigal, um, the prodigal son story, the parable. But, but I want you to, to, to if you, best you can, not think about it in your, um, in your past experience with this story. I want you to do your best to hear it as if you're sitting on that hillside for the very first time. Because with the story, the story fits every, the context of the story fits everyone who has ever had someone lost in their family that they loved, and for everyone who has been lost by their own emptying decisions. So let me tell the story in snippets. snippets. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So... He divided his property between them. This is the quintessential teen 20-something move. I know what's best for me. And I think it's though it's a more prevalent move now than it's ever been because for at least three decades, we've been, the most prominent message we've been sold is you do you. You do you. You do what's best for you. You do what you think is right. Nobody knows you better than you. You just do you. And after at least three decades of being told you do you, plenty of people do them. They make the choices that they feel like they see and that's the best for them. It didn't matter to the son that he lived in probably luxury. He was convinced that if he had access to all the resources that was in front of him, that he could do a better job with those than his parents could, the home that he was raised in, and that he could get outside of the limitations that he saw, that he felt in the shadow of his dad and his older brother. And much to the surprise of Jesus' hearers, the father obliges the request of his youngest son. The listeners would have gasped out loud at the insolence of this son, that he would have asked why his father was living for his 
inheritance. It was the nuclear option. It was the, the ultimate separator of relationship. It was saying to a living father that you are dead to me, I will do it, and gives us no insight to the emotions of the father. It just says, we're sitting on that hillside. You would have asked your own questions. After the gasp, it's like, how in the world did the father fulfill this request? It's an inheritance, right? This is not a gift. This is an inheritance. Inheritance is you get everything. And this was to be divided to his sons. So how long would it have taken him to calculate exactly how much his estate was worth and then how does he come up with the cash to fulfill the request? You know, when you get, a, uh, something happens, like right now, if you needed cash. When you need cash right now, you end up selling stuff at a loss, don't you? Sell it at a loss. This is what would happen now if we had to get into our 401ks, right? But if you have to and you have to, it doesn't matter if the market's down 25%. You have to. I think the people hearing the story, put it, are the, they are feeling the shame that they think this father should have felt. They're feeling the stress. How, how would I come up with that? How would I possibly fulfill this request of my son? But Jesus doesn't go there. A good storyteller leaves the room for the people sitting in the room or hillside to process their own emotions as if they were sitting there. And I believe they would have grown more put off every moment he told this story. But here is an amazing insight of how Jesus tells this part. At no time does he indicate the father met the son's request with offense or anger. At no time. He just goes right on by. There's no berating. There's no condemnation. There's no let the door, don't let the door hit you on the beep on the way out. Listen, there was, we have no conversations of him sitting down with his wife asking, what did we do wrong? It doesn't mean that those conversations aren't valid. It doesn't mean that they could be good conversations to have. It just means when Jesus is telling the story, he doesn't let us in on anything other than the father fulfilling the obligation and no other conversations taking place. Let's go on with the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I love when I see not long after that. To me, that indicates there was a gap between his request and his father able to fulfill the request. What did that gap look like in the home? Let's just pick a time. Let's just say it took him two weeks to do what was necessary to give the son what he asked for. What was the tenor in the home for those two weeks? You have a son who is now dreaming of all the things that he's going to do because he can now. And you have a father and a mother and a brother 
not knowing what to do. I think the dad probably had to talk the mom off the wall many times. I think the dad had to tell the son to get up back and do his chores that this didn't concern him. It had to be a palatable, tense time in between the request and what, as the father was gathering all his stuff. And then it tells us that the younger son did not stay close to home. It says that he went, and the God who loves you, it's not generally a short walk. Squandered. Squandered means to waste in reckless or foolish manner. In fact, the oxy, wastefully extravagant. That's the Cambridge Dictionary's definition of pride. Prodigier, which also means prodigal drive away. In many cases, a prodigal drives away. It's interesting how this story that Jesus tells is embedded in, even in our linguistic history. That's some picture that he paints. The opportunities afforded to this younger son now were no longer available to him. So no father's roof, no father's rules, but no father's resources. He just did as he pleased. He threw the money around and he collected a lot of friends and the money was gone and so was everybody else. And listen, alone was an unfamiliar place for him. Up to this point in his life, he had not known or experienced what alone felt like. Is feeling alone. At first, this place looked like this faraway place. Give up immediately. So he kind of gets a second wind. Not a stranger to hard work. All indications are, and especially in this, what it would have been in this part of the world. So it wasn't that the boy was afraid of work. He goes and gets a job. Talk about working at the service station a lot. But when I was able to drive, and then I had Tuesday night off because, thank you, Mom, that's when life, Monday through Friday, and a half day on Saturday, and I would pick up any raises their boy to pump gas. That was just his words to me, because as a father owned a service station, I get weeks. And I remember my mom asking me, so would you rather your dad work the 15 hours, or do you want to work the 15 hours? Thanks, Mom. My second complaint was my pay. Because I can assure you, I did the math. I knew what my paycheck was going to be. And I was quite surprised when it first came around and my paycheck was $50. And I said, this does not add up to this. And this is when I got reminded that I worked with them, not for them. And too, this is yours. And you're going to have some skin in the game when we go to college, even if we have to take it out of your someone and working with someone. And can I just interject? God doesn't need us to work for him. His invitation is for us to work with him. This is his kingdom. It's not ours. And he loves it when his sons and daughters get that and come alongside him, working with him for what his life work, if you can use the word life with him, right? For and so it's in this context where the young man starts to realize what's going on. Have you ever heard the phrase, we had a come to Jesus meeting? And it's somewhat a Southern phrase. I did not hear that growing up. Although when I look back and reflect, um, I feel like my parents had a few of these with me. For the uninitiated, it means kind of someone laid down the law. 
And it's interesting that this young man has his own come to Jesus meeting. He has it with himself. He could either lie in the bed he had made by his choices or he could go back to the bed he remembered that he grew up in. And he chose the latter. So verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, what a a great phrase. Jesus could tell a story. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. That's, Jesus is already dropping in some theological bombshells right there. That every sin is always against the father before it's against anybody else. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So he's rehearsing his speech, right? He's rehearsing his approach back home. And so alone, alone is this first step back home as a prodigal. And the second step, I believe, it's hunger. It's this empty settling. When you finally realize, after you've exhausted everything around you, that the place in which you find yourself is indeed empty. Now, Jesus never tells us how long in this story that this process took because the time involved is not the significant part of the story. One of the significant parts of the story is we will always end up empty outside of the Father's house. Here comes this aha moment. I can't go back as a son. That ship has sailed. I burnt that bridge. There's too much water underneath that burnt bridge. Whatever, whatever euphemism you can put with it, he realized that, but he said, but I think I can still go back. And that's repentance. Repentance is a key word in Scripture. Repentance is the only way to fill the empty that we ourselves created. And repentance is a lost word in our culture. And it, but it's one that needs to be redeemed because repentance carries more power in life and change than an apology ever can. Ever, ever can. Today, an apology really is what someone just wants you to say to admit that you were wrong. And we don't, we don't want to admit we're wrong in anything these days, so we double down on lies. A repentance is about ownership and movement. So the son's repentance was a decision grounded in his experience And his next move was grounded in faith because verse 28 says, he got up and went to his father. Isn't it interesting? He didn't think he could be a son any longer, but he had no doubt with with whom he was going to. He doubted his sonship, but he didn't doubt his fathership. You with me? So he got up. The resurrection, the word resurrection literally means to stand up. So in his repentance, see, an apology doesn't always have to come with movement. Repentance does. That's what makes apologies pretty doggone weak. I can apologize if I get caught. I can apologize if someone calls me on something. But repentance is a decision I've made. And when you get up out of repentance, there's a resurrection. Repentance is the only path to resurrections. There is no other path to resurrection than repentance. But resurrections are always God's response to repentance. It was a number of years ago. Leave that up, please. Because repentance always produces life. 
I don't know how many Easter's ago it was, but sometimes I say I'm saying things, Easter's that stick with me. I don't know if they stick with you or not. On this particular Easter, I said, dead things don't stay dead long around Jesus. Dead things don't stay dead long around Jesus. And repentance brings about resurrection. So in faith, in who God was, not in who he was, right? He had already come to the end of himself. But in faith of who the father was, he stands up in the middle of his brokenness and the middle of his mess. That's the only way we come to God, folks. We come to God when we stand up in our mess and in our brokenness. Not when we think we can put everything back together in a neat little Lego pile. You make the decision in the mess. You stand up. And that's his resurrection moment. Let me say this also about, this struck me this week. Repentance looks forward. Remorse only looks backwards. It's not enough to be, in fact, I would say repentance is nothing like remorse. Remorse looks backwards and remorse keeps you there. Repentance has you looking forward and it moves you there. God isn't interested in our remorse. I, I don't doubt that there has to be probably some kind of, some kind of remorse to get us to move forward. I, I, I don't deny that, but I'm saying that the enemy would like you to stop this message at that point that you should be remorseful for your actions and your decisions, and that is not what God wants you to stop at. He wants, to, he wants us to move forward, which is repentance, and the enemy, enemy will always want to get you stuck in the remorse Peace. All right, let's keep reading. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Do you remember in the beginning of the story, I told you that there was no indication that the father was angry. And this tells you why that assumption is true. It's because he responds to his son with compassion. Okay. The father wasn't angry with his son. The father was sorrowful for his son. Any feeling of rejection he could have felt was overwhelmed by what he knew the son's losses would be. Anger is a look at what you did to me response. Let that settle. Anger is a look at what you did to me response. Compassion is a look what you did to your self response. If the father would have been angry, look what you did to me. Look how you made me look. Instead, there's no anger even remotely hinted at and in fact, completely dismissed. So if you're sitting on that hillside, you have gotten angrier and angrier and you would have gotten more embarrassed. You would have been thinking, do I know this person? I don't think Jesus stood up and said, this is a parable. I'm giving you an analogy of what is going. No, he's telling them a story. And they are eat up inside. I think it went from being mad and angry to being hurt uh, their stomach's rolling and they get to this end and they're like, and he's doing what? 
His father never stopped looking for his son to return. He never stopped longing to embrace him. Here's how this finishes. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You know, he rehearsed that speech all the way home. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You can, you can hear the repentance and who he is. But the father, I love this. But the father said, I think in this story, the way my mind reads it is the dad interrupts the son. I don't think the son was done by saying I'm no longer can be called a son. I think the son has, I mean, he's, he's a far away. He has rehearsed this. He's added to it. He's made changes. And he's ready to unload everything. And his dad said, you had me when I saw you walking down the road. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. At no time was the father um, misunderstood what had taken place with his son. He had not sugarcoated it in his mind. He had, right? He had, he knew my son's dead. He was lost and he's found. So they begin to celebrate. So the robe is a representation here of the security. He didn't have any, now he's secure. His identity, the ring, he, he lost his identity, his identity immediately restored. He had lost his significance as a son, immediately restored. Do you, do you see how there was no ramp up to this? Well, son, here are the three conditions in which you can come home. You do this, you get the robe. You do these next three things, we'll talk about the ring. When you complete this list, we'll eat. The acceptance from our Heavenly Father isn't staged, it's not phased in, it's complete. I used to say that my my dad came to a faith that he was a sinner and Jesus was the Savior and he had no recollection at his death that he was a son. And so I'm, I'm excited that I'll see him one day in heaven and here I'm still somewhat sad that he never knew what it was to be a son. I encounter too many men and women that have no concept of being a daughter and a son of God. That it's this constant fight and struggle to find some measure of acceptance because they continue to live in the remorse of their decisions or the cycle they get trapped in. And what's liberating and freeing is the love of a father. No, he doesn't want you to stay in that cycle and you don't have to. No, he doesn't want you to live in remorse and you don't have to, but so many people do. Have you experienced the father jumping up and down on the front porch and meeting you before you turn the corner? That's salvation. That's the result of repentance. It's the thing we lose sight of. The more years we end up walking this out, we lose sight that the father is the one looking for us 
before we were ever looking for him. When you come back to the Father, you don't get I told you so's. You don't get you're just going to have to live with your decisions. God always meets repentance with resurrections. Come on, team. What's interesting about this story is the predominant position of Jesus' audience that day were prodigals. It was a nation that had turned their back on God. Isn't that ironic? He's telling maybe the most well-known, I'm talking globally, well-known story of Jesus. And, and the world might understand the connecting piece that this is a Bible story and have no idea of what awaits them in the Father. The setting is what makes the story so amazing, is that Jesus is extending life to those who already and repeatedly rejected it. The power of the story is that it highlights, and if again, Jewish culture, it highlights the egregious, the egregious nature of the son's rebellion and the extravagant love of God the Father. Paired together in one gut-wrenching story. But it's such an encouraging story, not just for prodigals, but it's an encouraging story for all of us who have prodigals in our life. Before Jean and I went to bed last night, our sleep, we prayed and we named nine, we can name nine that we know personally from our congregation that are prodigals. And we called their name in prayer. I wanna ask you, are there any former prodigals in the room? You would have classified yourself as a prodigal. You are a former prodigal, you're back with the Father. I want you to look at the hands. These are former, these are former prodigals. Let me ask you another question. Is there anyone in the room connected to a prodigal? You are connected to a prodigal. Any hands? Even more hands. All right, here's a harder question. Are there any of you in the room that is a prodigal? See, I didn't expect any hands. But what I wanted and what I prayed for is that you would have to sit in the moment of trying to evaluate or face the fact of being a prodigal. Well, that's, that's probably kind of mean, Pastor, is it? I don't think so. Because you're obviously here for a reason and you're watching for a reason or you've picked up this broadcast or you've picked up this a month later like I say and you're watching it again there, there has to be a moment in your life when you feel alone there has to be a moment in your life that you feel empty before you will make the step up in your mess and you will make your way to the Father who is waiting and looking for you it's part of the process and it's the loving process of the Father For a believing family member, having a prodigal is gut-wrenching. It's difficult to sit by and watch your kids or your parents or someone connected to you make life-emptying decisions. 
So is there anything that you can do? And the answer is yes. And I tried, it's not that these are the only things or the things that here are, I wanna give you four things that's open for us to do. The first is to leave an open door. To respond to your prodigal in a way that leaves the door open. Even if your door has to stay closed for a season. Now, what do I mean by that? Because sometimes separation is a necessary necessary step to get to alone and hungry. Be hurt. It always is going to hurt when someone walks away from you. And it's always going to be a hurt when you're a believer and someone walks away from God. Be hurt, but don't be angry. Personal rejection stings. Don't sting back. If God can leave an open door, surely we can leave an open door. The second is a term I learned just this year. Practice benevolent detachment. Benevolent detachment. So what am I saying? The benevolence is prayer. That when there is, there is not one thing that you can do more loving for an individual than to pray for them. You might think to write a check. You might think give them a ride. You might do this. All of those are sourced by your own power. Prayer is the one thing we do that's not sourced in our power. It's sourced in his power. So in fact, you connect the dots. Prayer can be the most loving thing we do for someone. So the benevolence is I'm going to pray. The detachment is I can't carry that weight any longer than I've carried it. It's interesting that Paul writes, he lists all these things that happened to him. I, I was whipped 39 times, you know, four different occasions. I was shipwrecked and I was in the deep uh, a night and a half. And then he says, and not to mention all the care for the churches, which tells you the, um, the emotional way of carrying someone else's spiritual burdens is heavy. So what are we to do? Because you can't keep carrying that. Benevolent detachment. I will allow the heaviness to bring me to a place that I will pray. Because quite frankly, do we pray many times when we're not heavy? But if that heaviness will bring us to prayer, the key would be then when we get up, then we're not as heavy as we went down. That's the detachment part. Lord, I'm, I'm gonna, I gotta give them to you. But I'm here, I'm giving them to you. And I, I think this might be one of the old expressions of the church that I grew up in anyway, um, uh, called praying through. Praying through might mean that I get up lighter than when I went down. And I don't get up until I can. That's benevolent detachment. I will pray, I will engage, but I can't carry the weight of their decisions. Moms, dads, I, I don't know a more difficult task than benevolent detachment. Grandmas, grandpas, I don't know know a more difficult task, but it's here for us to do. Benevolent detachment. As much as you need to say it, Father, they're yours. Because the fact of the matter is, he he loves them more than we do. The third is to embrace a work watch balance. This is directly connected to the benevolent detachment. You have to embrace a work watch balance. The father had to go to work. That farm was not gonna run itself. But if you're so immersed 
in the prodigal story and she can't work, you can't function, doesn't do anybody any good, doesn't do you any good, it's gonna drive you in the ground. But you also can't bury yourself in your work thinking that somehow you will create enough separation emotion that it won't hurt. You've already, you already got hurt. There's not gonna be an, emo, I'm not looking for an emotional separation from the hurt. I'm looking for the detachment of the weight associated with it. So the work watch balance is why I'm working, I'm working. And when I get a chance, I think the dad's going back for lunch and he's looking down the road saying, I wonder if my son's coming home today. That we mean to learn to work in faith Father, you know I got this to do. This is in your hands. I'm going to work in faith. I'm going to use these two hands to do this. But then I got to watch in hope. Hope means an expectant confidence in Scripture. It doesn't mean an emotion. It's what keeps your watching from being hand-wringing. And your watching is hopeful. And when you get a chance, when you get that break, you take the look. Are they coming down the lane? And this one's a little bit harder to swallow. But your prodigal might not ever come home to you. But don't give up hope that they'll come to the Father. This is the long game, folks. We're talking about eternity here. My end does not represent the end. Your end does not represent their end. So as long as you have breath in your lungs and skin left on your knees. You pray in hope. The last one is to leave the ahas to God. God is the only one who can orchestrate aha moments. You should always be mindful that your rescue attempts might be, might be delaying the aha turnarounds. And I understand that families that take hard stands with their kids are increasingly being frowned upon. But I believe you can clearly articulate love without affirming choices. But that takes resolve. Just because it's, you're not being received in love does not mean that is not in fact what you're giving. You with me? Just because what you're doing is not being received in love. Do you understand why then you can't be angry? Because you can't love anybody when you're angry. Because you're, you're more focused on yourself. You can't focus on yourself and focus on others at the same time. It's very difficult to do. And I will tell you, most people know when you're doing it. And remember that many times, especially with our kids, love unfortunately many times takes the long road home think about your own road to the father it's interesting because you it's easy to read this story as we're the father and at the actually in the story like we're not the father the father's the father and he's telling the story of what he opens up to all of us especially those in which we are engaged that are away from him but it does have parallels to how we receive our kids, our parents, our sisters, our brothers, our family, our grand, right? So it all has parallels. So here's how I wanna to pray today. If, if you have a prodigal, this is a moment in time 
God's carved out for us to pray together for prodigals. So I invite you to take a posture of prayer in a moment. Come to the altar and pray. Turn around at your seat and pray. I, I don't know, I, I, sometimes I forget what I say in, in, in what service I say it. So if I'm repeating myself, um, don't tell me. That, that was funny, but it's not a funny moment. Um, when I pray in my office and I sit in my office chair and I put my feet up on my desk, that is not a prayer of desperation. That's a prayer of convenience. I'm about to do something. Oh, I'm going to pray. I'll pray and I'll keep doing what I'm doing. And I have, I have done my very best in the last seven or eight months to correct my prayer posture during the day. That when something needs a desperate prayer, I get my butt up out of my chair with my legs on my desk and I go to another place in my office and that's where I pray on my knees. We don't pray out of convenience. We pray out of desperation. And our posture matters in communicating that desperation. We'll give you an opportunity to pray in desperation. It's not a hopeless prayer. It's just a prayer of desperation. You may be a prodigal. Resurrection means to stand up. So in some point in this, I don't have to know. You're not being reconciled to me. You're being reconciled to the Father. I'd like you to tell me. But you might need to stand up and head another direction. And you can do that today. You might want to receive communion with your family. And the bowls to my left and my right. But movement always matters. Always. Movement always matters. And so during a response time, I encourage you to move come to pray at the altar, someone will come and pray with you and pray for your prodigal as well. So Father, in this moment, Lord, your story has come to life to us. It's no wonder it's the most recognized of your stories. How it must have just stuck so deep on that hillside in those people's minds and hearts. What kind of father would receive a son back like that. And it's you. It's you. You will receive a son and a daughter back like that. So Father, I pray that you receive us today like that. And we will pray for our prodigals, for you to receive them in that manner as well. Do what only you can do in this moment in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.